Why did Rome launch three campaigns into Scotland? How did they differ? How did they end? And what's the link between Darth Vader and Hadrian's Wall? Join me and guest expert Dr. Andrew Tibbs as we cover this and much, much more on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi and welcome. My name's Neil and this is the second of two episodes in which I spoke with Dr. Andrew Tibbs about Roman Scotland. What was going to be a single episode covering Roman fortifications and the three Roman campaigns in Scotland has ended up being two episodes, one on each topic. If you haven't listened to the first episode on the fortifications, why not give it a go? In this episode, we focus on those three Roman campaigns, as well as answer some questions which have been sent in. Thanks again for those. We try to either answer them directly at the end or cover them in the course of our discussions. Any feedback is welcome, and this includes ratings or reviews if you can, but you can also find me on Twitter as @ancientblogger and on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube as @ancientblogger. The podcast is also on Twitter as @houndancient. And as with many of my newer episodes, you can find the episode notes on my website, ancientblogger.com. This includes maps, links to Dr. Andrew Tibbs and images, and I think the maps really will help. My geography of Scotland certainly received a boost whilst working on this episode. And as for Dr. Andrew Tibbs, well, here's a bit about him. Dr. Andrew Tibbs is an archaeologist and historian who specialises in researching Roman activity in northern England and Scotland. A teaching fellow with the University of Edinburgh and an honorary research fellow in archaeology at Durham University, he hosts the popular At Roman Scotland Twitter account, which he uses to promote the Roman archaeology of Northern Britain to a wide audience. At the beginning of the year, his short guide to Hadrian's Wall was published by Amberley, and more recently, Bar Publishing have released Facing the Enemy, a GIS analysis of early Roman fortifications in Scotland. Just to recap then, this was the second half of a much longer chat we had, the first part being all about those Roman fortifications and forming that first episode. So this one picks up at the point where we first discussed the three Roman campaigns in Scotland. I hope you enjoy it. Dr Andrew Tibbs was a joy to chat with and thanks again to you for taking the time to listen. Are you ready now? Okay then, let's begin. We've spoken about the fortifications, or rather Andrew's spoken about the fortifications, and these date to various points in time where Romans had activity in Scotland. But that activity can be largely grouped into three campaigns. And we're going to start with the first. Could you perhaps give us a brief overview of the campaign, the dates involved, and what happened as a result? And then I think specifically for the first campaign, we need to have a look at the source or our main source that we have for it. Yeah. So. Like you say, we've got three campaigns. So these are the main periods of invasion in Scotland. There's some indication of pre-first campaign activity, but it's very slight. And it's debated as to whether or not there was activity going on before the first invasion. There's some activity between the invasions. There may have been some activity after the invasions. But as an archaeologist, we approach this with the fact that there are three main invasions and the majority of activities in Scotland dates to one of these campaigns. So 
first campaign happens under the the Flavian emperors, so it's known as the Flavian invasion. Where and when it happened is a little difficult to pin down because we need to have datable evidence, and datable evidence, there's different forms datable evidence. It can be scientific dating, like radiocarbon dating. It can be numismatics or coins, epigraphic carvings and, and text. So dating of these things is always a little fluid and very difficult for us to say precisely when things are happening. So towards the middle of the AD 70s, there is an effort by the Roman Empire to push north in Britain. And they seem to have established a series of fortifications across northern England, so across the Pennines, going from a place called Scotch Corner um, up to Penrith. There's a modern A road that basically follows that line very loosely. That seems to be a bit of a border or a frontier limit of the empire, but then they keep pushing north. And we know that they reach Carlisle around 75. AD, and we know that from dendrochronological dating, which is tree ring dating of timbers that were found when they were excavating the fort. We know from excavation that they reach a place called Elgenhoch, which is in Midlothian, so it's just literally just south of Edinburgh, and that's around AD 77 they reach that. And we know that from coins that were found under all the modern layers. So we're fairly secure on that dating, although it was only a couple of coins. So we think they're invading Scotland around 77 AD. They get up into the far north of Scotland, so they establish the most northerly fort at a place called Stracathro, which is between Dundee and Aberdeen. Um, So it's in northeast Scotland. And then beyond that, they keep campaigning and they build a series of camps past Aberdeen up to almost as far as Inverness. And that, that's the Murray Coast there. And we've got a series of camps along there that were fairly certain date to this campaign. And then the, the camps just stop. Um, the forts stop and then the camps just stop. And it's because the army is withdrawn. There's trouble on the German frontier, so they have to move resources around, and that's why they withdraw from Scotland back into, we think, northern England. And that's somewhere between AD 86 and AD 90. It depends on how you look at it, but as I said earlier, you you can't pin these dates down accurately. So we think by AD 90, there's a lack of coins found in the north from these periods, whereas there are more found further south, so we think that they're withdrawing by this time. The backing fabric, if you want to call it that, is a work by Tacitus, and it's called the Agricola. And this is an account of an individual, in fact, his father-in-law, who ran the campaign, or rather is attributed to running the campaign that Andrew's just gone over. It's a very interesting source, like many sources. It's troublesome at points. Can you just briefly talk about the Agricola and what the dangers are of accepting it at face value? Yeah, so like you say, the Agricola is a description, is probably the best word, of the campaigns of Julius Naeus Agricola, who was the Roman governor in Britain in the late 70s. And he was responsible for, according to Tacitus, 
he was responsible for campaigning in Wales and sorting out all the problems in Wales and then moving into Scotland and he campaigned and established all the forts personally because he didn't have anything better to do at this time. He went to see every individual site and said, let's... Oh, obviously, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've got specialists in this, but it's not... No, you wouldn't have anyone who did this professionally. You'd just go along and go, uh, point over there looks nice. Yeah. Yeah. Good view. The big boss comes down, whether or not they obeyed what he said or just quietly said, yes, sir, and then did their own thing, we'll never know. Um, (laughs) So he's here campaigning, and then, according to Tastas, the emperor at the time, got very, very jealous and withdrew him from Britain, and then they lost all the territory that they had uh, campaigned and secured because the great general had been withdrawn. So I think the first thing, as we've said, it's writing about his father-in-law. So, you know, presumably no one's going to be nasty about their father-in-law. Um, nope. Not, not in this instance. Um, and then the second thing is it's biased. It's, it's, it is described as a eulogy to my father-in-law. Mm at the start mm. so it's not it's not a history volume you know Tastus didn't write something that he thought we'd still be looking at 2000 years later no. um, it's also a volume which is there to big up Agricola so yeah. one's Graupius everything culminates in a big battle you know like any good film or it's the third act of a film you've got to have yeah, a showdown sure your denouement the you know it's this big battle with thirty thousand caledonii and like two romans and um, one of the romans gets a nick on his finger and twenty five thousand natives have all been slaughtered it's big it's portraying him brilliantly because the intended audience was a group of high-powered influential people in rome you know, that's who he was writing for, people mm. that had never been here, people that had no experience of all this. The odds were against the Romans, but we fought and won. Mm. Um, it, everybody seems to take it as gospel truth, and we know that's not likely. Yeah, There's been a fair bit of research into this. Now, a lot of the translations we have emanate from a 19th century translation that's been updated and updated. There is a new volume, I say new, it's about 10 years old, I think, translation by Woodman and Krauss, and it actually takes into account the Latin of the oldest version we have, which is, I think, about the 15th, 14th or 15th century. And they look at what does this word mean when Tacitus writes it, are they take into account other classical texts, other Roman texts, and other traditions of translation, and they very much portray it in a very refreshingly new light. But as everyone will point out, there is a lack of specific detail in this book. It could be set anywhere. There are only yeah. two geographical locations mentioned: the Clota and the Boditra, and these are river mouths, estuaries. The temptation has been to match that up with the Clyde and the Forth, but there really isn't anything that says for definite it's those two. It could equally be the Solway Firth and the River Tyne. The River Tyne before industrialisation was much more estuary-like. So we can't really place anything 
in Scotland, other than saying it was north of these fortifications over the Pennines, the Scotch Corner to Penrith fortifications, everything happened north of that. Anything else is down to personal sort of preference on how you translate and interpret it. So we do, yeah, we don't even know where it where it was for, and I find that really quite interesting, given how pivotal it is and how often it's referenced by people. Yeah, I mean, our job as archaeologists and scholars is to sort of marry up. This is what a Roman writer is saying. This is what the historical evidence says, and this is what the archaeological evidence says. And mm, yeah. it doesn't always marry up. So Agricola is a great starting point. Mm. Um, it is very insightful. You know, they're going, it's going to be based on elements of truth, um, but we can't sort of hand on heart say all of it's true, and a lot of it seems unlikely. Tastus implies that it's a very violent period in Scotland and that the Romans are constantly being attacked. Well, the fort sites that we've looked at the evidence isn't really indicating that they've been attacked no. or severely attacked. But we have to caveat that, caveat that with the fact that most of them have been excavated mid-20th century or earlier, and the standards of reporting, writing and recording aren't as detailed as we do today, so maybe there is something in it. But generally it doesn't look like things are happening. We've got some evidence in South West Scotland, from a place called Castle Ore, which is an Iron Age site, that there is a bit of a symbiotic relationship with the Romans, that the farmers there are allowed to continue farming, and in return they would have had to have supplied the army with grain and mules. You know, Hmm. if the Roman army was to come and wipe out every single person in an area, then there'd be no one to supply the army because mm. you know they're they're intending in the first century on occupying Scotland and you yeah. know, absorbing it into the empire, and you would have had your fortifications there permanently staffed, and you would have had to have supplied grain for that. And and studies have shown it can be up to hundred square miles around a fortification to supply enough food mm. for that site. So you wouldn't get rid of your farmers, you wouldn't kill them because you'd have to replace them with someone yeah. and your army has better things to do than farm you know they've got to patrol yeah, and absolutely and all this stuff so it, it is complex it is complex and and we don't quite yeah it's looking increasingly that there's a lot of instances that have been spun out i think is probably the way to say it so read it read it because it is an entertaining read but don't take it too literally yeah think of it like a film yeah, you know, yeah. Certain things have been dramatised. Yeah, based on true events. Yeah, exactly. One of those films, you were like, oh, here we go. Something that occurred between the two campaigns that we have to reference, and we've spoken about it before, and that's Hadrian's Wall. Just to give a brief premise of it, it occupies, I think it's around 70 miles, I think 76 miles, something like that, around. across northern England. And it was began in early part of the, the second century by the Emperor Hadrian. Yeah, so Hadrian becomes emperor around 117 AD. He lasts until 138, 39, around then. And around 122 AD, he commissions the construction of Hadrian's Wall. So Hadrian was a military man. That was his background. And all military emperors really try to sort of put their stamp on it because they want to be seen as great as 
Augustus and Julius Caesar, who were the sort of original creators of the general boundaries of the, the They're your yardstick, aren't they? Yeah. They're the aspirational yeah. figures. Exactly. So Hadrian decides, you know, the army isn't really up to scratch, probably not as good as it was in his day, that sort of thing. So he goes on a big tour of the empire, visits the German frontier, finds them all lying about, gambling, drinking, being, I think, something like unsoldierly is the word used. So he starts making them do more rigorous training and activities. He comes to Britain, we're told, from a book written in the Roman period, but a few few decades after Hadrian had uh, been and gone. But he basically commands them to build a wall to keep the barbarians out of the empire. And that's it. The wall is much more complex than that. It's, it's complex, I think, is quickly becoming my catchphrase today. Um, <laughs> so basically, there's an evolution in military thinking, and there have been a lot of precursors to Hadrian's Wall. They don't just come up with this idea of building a giant wall. There are smaller walls, longer walls, turf walls, road barriers, sorry, road, road sort of walls, frontier limits built across the empire. And it's a gradual evolution to actually, oh, we could cut off this part of, of this territory with an actual wall. But of course, it being Roman and an evolution of these ideas over centuries, you know, this is the biggest wall they construct. It's the most complex because it's a series of forts along the wall. And the wall evolves. Even during construction, they change the size of it. They change the the forts. They add in more forts. They build towers between the forts. So it's a very secure frontier. And the idea is to keep some people out. You know, there's a very extensive network of defences connected with it. Hadrian's Wall isn't just a physical wall. It's ditches, it's uh, ramparts, it's bits of road and all the fortifications. And there's also fortifications down the west coast of England that form the outposts of the wall. So Hadrian's Wall, think of it as a complex, not as a wall. But they build this, and basically they're trying to file people Anyone coming into the empire or leaving the empire have to go through these forts. They're filed into these places that they can be checked. But you know, you've got a wall that's probably 10 foot plus high, might have been whitewashed or not. It's very intimidating. Yeah, you know, if yeah. This is the first time you've seen, well, even square bricks or, or yeah. you know, carved stones never been seen by the, the native populations mm. other than those living near some of the forts. And, and bearing in mind, you know, Scotland was vacated around 90 AD, and then you're talking about 30-odd years later, almost a lifespan for people in this yep. day and age. You know, they're then getting this huge wall built up. So it's very intimidating. There may have been some northern outposts, two or three uh, forts that were north of the wall that were operating where there would have been patrols. But, yeah, Hadrian's Wall is sort of delineating the edge of the empire in this period but it's not fixed and it's always fluid we have to get rid of this idea of we have today of what borders are you know this mm, is the empire yeah. they will do as they want it's very good to hear that Hadrian's wall is a bit more complex than you might think the idea of a wall is again largely predicated by our understanding of what a wall is it's very good to hear it described as you have in that it was a control device, that it was porous at points, that it did much more than simply act as 
a physical challenge for people who wanted to get into the southern lands behind it. And it did a lot more than you might think it did. It was, as you say, it's a bit more complex than that. I guess the one the one analogy that we can use, which is probably quite probably actually quite appropriate for it, is think of it as the Death Star in Star <laughs> Wars. It generally hovers around the same area. Occasionally you can get through it and cause a bit of trouble and maybe not mm. quite blow it up. But you know, you've got that is your big secret weapon. Not so secret, but that's your big mm. weapon that's there to intimidate everybody and you know, your, your TIE fighters, your Roman soldiers go out scouting and all that and, you know, occasionally decide they're, you know, going to invade the Outer Rim planets and things like that. Sadly, Hadrian's Wall was built with one weakness, which if a <laughs> if one Caledonian soldier could run along the wall and jump through a gap through one of the vents, he could take the whole thing down. Not to complicate things, but we do get into later texts, you know, in the Roman period that say the wall was breached. Oh, okay. Um, you know, which is part of the reason we seem to get a third invasion of Scotland. So it's not that dissimilar. <laughs> well, that brings me to the second campaign. We need to get do the second one first. This started around AD 139 or 139. Can you give an overview of what it involved and perhaps how it differed from the first? Yeah, so Hadrian dies around 138, 139. His successor is Antoninus pious so antonine he reigns 139 to about 165 antonine doesn't have the military background of hadrian but he's still emperor how he got there is a very different story but he is emperor and he has to show the people back in rome that he is worthy of the title emperor so he decides i'm going to conquest what has not been conquered successfully before and mm. that is Scotland. It's a vanity project. Mm. Um, he invades southern Scotland, establishes a series of fortifications, some, many, built on original first century fortifications. He then decides, well, Hadrian was so brilliant and Hadrian built a wall. I'll build a wall and I'll be seen as being so brilliant. Mm. So he commissions the construction of the Antonine Wall, it runs across this narrow neck of land where Stirling is, not quite at Stirling, slightly further south. And it's basically between, almost between Edinburgh and Glasgow. This wall differs because it's built of turf. So it's basically slabs of soil which are built on top of each other. And there's also a series of forts and intermittent fortlets along this wall. There's also a series of outpost forts to the east and to the west along the shores of the Firth of Clyde and Firth of Forth and potentially going down some of the coast, some of the west coast where there are a series of fortlets overlooking the the Clyde because Mm. of the geographical nature of it. The Antonine Wall was considerably shorter. I think it's half the length of Hadrian's Wall and that's because it occupies a point that there's a natural bottleneck it's apparently the the narrowest part of britain if you're going to build a wall it's a great place to add that choke point so it was quite a good position for it yeah exactly i mean it's a fairly good secure location you know it's onto this strategic bit of land it's also a lot less effort and work to build out of turf so it's a relatively short campaign it's a few years 
he's not overseeing it personally, is he? He's got this uh, Quintus Lollius Urbicus, who was the governor, and apparently he oversaw this. And as an interesting fact, which is something we'll come to in our third campaign, he was born in modern-day Algeria. And when you think of Rome as being, or the Roman Empire as being, something which is specifically based in Rome, obviously it is, but a lot of the characters that come out of it come from different parts of the empire. Hadrian was born, for example, in southern Spain. I think Agricola was born in southern France or southern modern-day France. Again, I'm using modern-day country names. Our next character we'll come to shortly was another African, was born in Libya, Leptis or Lepsis Magna. But in any case, how did it end? What stopped it? Yeah, so we they, they build the wall. They have some outposts. They may have made attempts to conquer further into Scotland because we know get up into Perthshire. And then it just seems to almost abruptly end. Now, uh, the Emperor Antonine dies around 165 AD, but we know for a few years before that Hadrian's Wall, some of the sites along Hadrian's Wall were being refurbished. And this, this generally comes from inscriptions, the, the detail. This section was refurbished by this group of soldiers sort of thing. And it looks like as soon as he dies, they fall back to Hadrian's Wall. So the vanity project is right. no more. Hmm. We're not too sure why. Chances are it's similar to the first century that there was trouble elsewhere. Resources hmm. had to be reallocated and this was not a priority for the empire. So they fall back to the Hadrian's Wall around the 160s. And then that becomes the border for a, for a good long period. It's an interesting idea that we have these frontiers as moving because you think of modern borders as being very fixed and defined. But as you've pointed out, you have these frontiers and they shift and they change. They move north or they move south, depending on what the resources are made available to them. We come to our third and final campaign. And this was led by Septimius Severus. And as I mentioned, he held from Leptis Magnus, modern-day Libya. And in fact, I did an episode on him with Maria Lloyd. Really, really interesting, both himself as a person and also Leptis Magnus, which is a fascinating place. This campaign dated to the early 3rd century, about 208, and he led it personally. He brought his two sons, Caracalla and Geta. How did it go? And again, how did this one differ? What were the causes for it? Why was he there? The difference with this and the other uh, invasions is that the emperor himself led this, although by by this time, he's quite elderly, quite ill. Um, he has to be carried around on a on a chair by soldiers, <laughs> which great way to travel if you've got nice roads and they're not too bumpy. So yeah, this the easiest way to think of this campaign is the first one is exploratory uh, with a view to conquering. The second one is a vanity project, and the third one is basically genocide. Um, mm. The Roman accounts that have survived tell us that there were breaches of the wall. We assume that's Hadrian's Wall. It could be the Antonine Wall. It doesn't say for definite. The emperor then decided enough was enough. I think there have been treaties that have been broken, money paid, yeah. and all this sort of Roman tactics. But Romans love to do everything but fight. Um, yeah. because it was resource intensive. You know, you kill yeah. 100 soldiers, we need to recruit 100 more and train them. Yeah. You don't do that overnight. You need to create new weapons. If you're on a frontier, that's a lot more hassle because you then yeah. go to mine resources, wood for fires, all this sort of stuff. So fighting last thing they want to do. But the emperor has a bit of a hissy fit and decides he's going to invade. 
He also wants to take his two sons away from the vices of Rome. I can't remember the exact wording, but that's the implication that they got up to a lot of no good in Rome. <laughs> um, yeah. My vice in Rome would be ice cream because it's great, but you know. Anyway, <laughs> so they, they lead a massive invasion force. It's, we're told by the Roman sources that it's basically the biggest invasion force that Scotland has ever seen. We tend to think of some of the largest Roman camps we have as belonging to that invasion force. Okay. And it appears that some came overland from the Scottish borders. It's quite likely that some forces sailed up, potentially from York, to the River Tay, to the Firth of Tay, where there's a big vexillation fortress. So it's basically a mixed, every type of soldier fortress called Carpu. And from there, that was going to be the regional command headquarters for this invasion. Hmm. They go campaigning during the summer seasons, whatever that means. Hmm. Probably included spring and a bit of autumn. Yeah. Um, and then they withdraw to the winter barracks. Now, that's generally been interpreted as York, where they head back to what is you know provincial capital at that point. Hmm. And they last two or three seasons, so from 208 to 211. And during one overwintering period in York, um, Severus is meant to have dropped dead. Um, Mm. And I think if you go under the Minster in York, you can do an underground tour of the crypt and all the excavations there. You can actually see a little plaque that details where he died. Um, not sure how true that is. Yeah, I've, I've been to York a few times, and I didn't know about that. That's a bit annoying. Yeah. Uh, next time I go up there, I'll have to have a look. To the Minster, under the Crypt Tour. And then, um, basically, his sons may have done another year of campaigning. We're not too sure. It's a bit vague. But basically, they hightail it back to Rome because yeah. they've got to, to assert themselves over who becomes the next emperor. Yeah. And, um, it's a whole different story, but I don't think it's a spoiler to say one of them wins and one of them doesn't. <laughs> yeah, a spoiler after a few thousand years, I think we can get away with that one. I just wanted to pick up on something you, you mentioned about the whole genocide aspect, and that's obviously quite a, a serious thing to say. But we have an account by Dio Cassius, who is a historian, and he wrote a fair bit about this campaign, and he spoke about two particular tribes, the Maitai and the Caledonia. It's been the two tribes that Severus had issue with and the ones that he initially did some sort of deal with. And then they broke the truce. And apparently he then quoted the Iliad and he quoted lines from book six. And I'll read them out now and it gives some context. And again, we're, we're taking this with a pinch of salt, but it could have happened. And the quote is, once in our hands, not one should squirm away from death's hard fall. No fugitive, not even a man child carried in a woman's belly. Let them without distinction perish, every last man of Ilium, without a tear, without a trace. Those are really harsh words, and it's said in the context of where Menelaus, one of the Greek kings, has captured a hostage, or sorry, captured a prisoner. The standard thing you do with prisoners, particularly when they're Trojan nobles, is you ransom them for a big amount. And I think it's Adrastus. He's saying, well, you can sell me, ransom me, I'll give you a load of money. Agamemnon speaks these words as he comes up to convince his brother that we're not doing this anymore. We're not having any kind of negotiations. They're off the table now. And he just kills him. Even if it wasn't something which was said at the time, it's a very good way of characterising presumably what uh, Septimius was thinking. 
we're not doing diplomacy anymore. That point has passed. There's only one result, and that is Rome doing the most extreme thing it can do. I wouldn't say the northern frontier is ever a second thought, but it's certainly not something that is held hugely important to Rome. Is that a fair thing to say, or how do you think the Romans saw that frontier? I think it is. I mean, there's some, there's classical sources, Roman writers, that tell us there's a few resources available in Scotland. But it's never, there's never been a huge appeal for the Romans. I think in the first century, it's conquered partly because it's there. It's, it looks good for people to conquer mm. it. There's nothing really for them. You know, there are no major settlements. There might be some resources, but there's nothing that's going to add greatly to the economy of Rome. Mm. You know, even even the slaves that, that we hear them taking from Scotland, it's not, that's not going to be they're not going to be particularly well trained. They're not going no. to be particularly safe. They might be, you know, quite risky to take those slaves on. So there's no real reason for them to come to Scotland. Even in the second century under Antonine, uh, the Antonine campaigns, they're taking over southern Scotland, but they've not got a huge interest in the north. They seem to dip their toes in it, mm. and that's it. And, and I suspect if it had been more secured the southern part of scotland would have been quite happily absorbed and and you know would have we'd have seen a growth in sort of roman ways and doing of doing things and, and buildings and then you get to the severing campaigns and we've got to remember these people that are writing about them are doing it afterwards and have their own audiences yeah yeah you know we don't know how you know we hear that they broke the treaty did the romans break the treaty you know all this sort of stuff. Romans never break the treaty. It's always someone else. <laughs> exactly. But that's, Even when they break the treaty, they don't break the treaty. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that is a really valid point. You know, we don't know what's actually happening. We've got this sort of sideline that the emperor was taking his kids away from the vices of Rome to teach them warcraft or whatever. Is that more of the emphasis on things that this yeah. was an expedition in keeping the army? busy. That's a really important point to consider. Roman soldiers in the sources are often, they start getting silly ideas if they're left idle. Yeah. It's one of those consistent themes you find. So the best thing you could do with a bunch of Roman soldiers, particularly in a way, because part of being a Roman soldier, one of the things you sign up for is what you can win, what you can achieve. And I mean that in a material game. If you're fighting, if you're defeating tribes, you're going to get a share of the spoils. You're going to get something more material wealth, might be slaves, might be something. So you do have the idea that Roman soldiers are themselves uh, demanding activities. So you have to find them something to do. You have all of these different, I suppose you call them motivations, and they all meet in the same point, which is let's go to Scotland or let's go to that northern frontier and do something because it solves a number of problems. It might be keeping the soldiers happy, might be keeping tribes quiet, might also be keeping my sons out of you know the ne'er-do-wells and the places they've been going. I really appreciate you going through those three campaigns. And it brings me to the point of questions. Let's go for the first question, which is, were any of the sites reoccupied during the campaigns? Yeah, so first century, they're coming and building new sites and new locations. So there's none of those that we're aware of are reoccupied. There may be some slight evidence, as I mentioned earlier, of pre Flavian activity in Scotland. So there may be something underneath some of those sites, but very unlikely. 
second century they are coming in, the Romans are coming back to Scotland and they've got the remains of these forts. Now, we don't quite know what state they're left in. The general consensus is that they tend to be, all the wooden buildings are burned down or dismantled and all the ramparts, the turf walls are pushed into the ditches. And there is some evidence of that at some sites but a lot of that is just sort of educated assumptions by, by academics. But they're coming back in the second century, and we know they're reoccupying some sites. Ardoch is the prime example of that, because that's mm. a, a quite a large first century site. In the second century, the army is smaller. The forts needs to be smaller. It's more secure if it's a tighter space. Mm. So they build a new rampart, which is sort of, on top of the old ramparts, and they cut down the actual size of the interior space. So they are reoccupying that. We've got evidence from other sites that seem to imply there's reoccupation. Now, this can be you excavate a a site, which you know is first century, and you find bits of second century pottery on that site. Mm. There are lots of ifs and buts, but that's generally how we identify a lot of the sites in Scotland. So we know in the second century there is some reoccupation. There's over 150 Roman camps identified in Scotland, and we only know the likely date of a fraction of those, and there's a Mm. lot more out there that could have evidence of different periods of occupation. Or just need to do a lot more work. In the third century, we don't think they are reoccupying old sites because it's such a large army a large force Mm. that's invading there are no sites to reoccupy they have to build new ones right i suppose it's easier to make an existing site smaller than it is to then re-expand it and from what you were saying it was a big force that came over well on that one there are and this goes for different periods but there is some evidence that camps are absorbed into larger ones okay so there is some evidence that basically they keep one side of the defences and build new ones around that. There are some bigger sites that have smaller sites within them. So they've come in and seen this is a good location, but there's a small camp. We'll build a completely new set of defences around it. Mm. So basically the answer is it's complex. One of the things that you've mentioned is that forts weren't placed or fortifications weren't placed in arbitrary positions. They were there because they were strategically important. And that's not necessarily going to change over a couple of centuries. It might do over between, as we've mentioned with Sterling, over a thousand years, perhaps. But it's not necessarily going to change between, say, the first and second century. If you've got a fort located at the head of a particular stream or river, you're probably going to want to settle pretty much close to that if you go there again. Well, they take into account a number of factors when they're choosing a site. So natural resources, the defensive mm. nature of the landscape, and also in the first and second centuries is where the people are moving. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. portlets may be built in new locations because suddenly they need a river crossing in this location because all the people live yes. in this area and are passing yeah. through here, or they're using that river to, to come in from the sea, so they need to secure it. So yeah, certainly in the first and second century, Generally, the sites are in the same locations, but when you build the Antonine Wall, you've not had that before, mm. so you need to, you know, you're building new fortifications in the valleys that are important yeah, in that yeah. particular area. 
third century completely different because the purpose is to eradicate yeah. the enemy, whether that's complete genocide or whether it's partial genocide. So the forts are built where they need to go, like marching camps. You build it where you need to go. So it does vary slightly um, between the periods, but the first and second century, very similar. The last few questions relate to geography and where the Romans did or did not go. How far north do we think they got, not just in a military sense, but also in terms of exploration? So we know from several older sources, so sort of um, classical texts, that there certainly were explorers around, and that in the Greek period, there was explorers around that area. Ptolemy's Geography, which is one of the oldest sort of mapping documents, I'm certainly listing that. It's a series of coordinates um, that people have sort of subsequently turned into maps. So if you ever see a map of that, that's not the original text. It's, it's a sort of accepted interpretation of it. It lists an island called Thule, um, somewhere north of the sort of British mainland, although trying to pinpoint that is, has been yeah. really challenging. Is it Greenland? Is it Iceland? <laughs> yeah. Is it Shetland, Orkney, the Faroe Isles? You know, lots of opportunities. I think someone's even suggested Svalbard up in the Arctic Circle. Wow. Not quite sure how many of those are, mm. are authentic and true. But anyway, certainly pre-Roman invasion of Scotland, there's a knowledge that Britain is an island and that there are other islands around mm. us. Certainly Tacitus details uh, a circumnavigation of Britain. So that's ships sailing around now. Those ships would have, I imagine, inevitably had to have stopped off to yeah. resupply with fresh water, potentially yeah. food, and diplomatic missions. You know, the Romans mm. are very big on establishing contact with people. So mm. there's no doubt in my mind that there would have been activity or connections between Romans, whether that's military or merchants, because a lot of the merchants went ahead of the army and, you know, set up your trading relationships but there would have been relationships with islanders but where they're landing if they are landing we don't know there will have been coastal potentially will have been coastal fortifications built so possibly camps where people could have set up for the night hmm. we've got one or two examples that we think are those ones at uh, the mouth on the north north side of the firth of tay uh, east haven there's there's what looks like a camp that was possibly to do with coastal activity. There may be other sites. There won't be much left to find. So it would be mm. very difficult to identify those. Yeah, the evidence is going to be very difficult to find. The idea that the exploration was done outside of military capacity, that's a really good part of the question because Romans were very good at that, particularly in terms of later military activity, I should say. You go and find the way the best way you can find out about a particular area is through trade is through having people work out what's there. and Yeah, and trade was going on for thousands and thousands and thousands mm. of years before the Romans. Mm. You know, we've got evidence in the south coast of England of trade with, with what became, you know, Gaul, France, long before the Romans ever got in. There's even something in south of south of England, I believe, that they've tried to link it in. I don't know how much evidence there is to it with the Phoenicians trading tin. I'm not going to say that, that happened but it's been something that's been suggested there's plausible evidence i think it's barry cunliffe did a lot of the original work on this oh, right. plausible evidence of tin mm. being traded 
with mainland Europe. I don't know whether yeah. that stretches uh, the Venetians, but there's certainly long-standing evidence. Yeah. And we've got great example uh, mentioned when Claudius invaded England and, and set up himself at Camlodunum, which is modern Colchester. The king of the Orcades came down okay. to pay homage. Where's the Orcades? Do you think, is that Orkney, perhaps? I think that's likely to be Orkney. Okay. Um, from Ptolemy's, I think Ptolemy's map it is, it's, it's likely to be the Orkneys. Mm. But again, we just have to take with a pinch of salt what the original writer was writing about. Mm. I mean, this is a, a later Roman period text, but also there are translators later. And sometimes, you know, Victorian, after Victorian, Sometimes they can have their own agendas. Yeah. So they may decide that because of, for example, Agricola being set in Scotland, we know that's for definite, mm-hmm. um, they may have decided that Orcades is related to all this yeah. sort of thing and that they're putting their assumptions onto it. Yeah. We've got to be careful when we interpret that today. The last question relates not to going north, but it goes how far west did the Romans go? And it includes the Hebrides, which is an island, a couple of islands to the west, off the west coast of Scotland. Do we have much evidence? We don't have any evidence of Roman military activity inside of the highlands and mm. islands of Scotland. We have objects from trade. There's objects being found on usually amphora, so the sort of big pots that they keep wine or olive oil on. Those have been found in Orkney and I think Shetland. Um, I'm not too sure if there's any been found in the Western Isles. I think there might be one or two fragments. So there's certainly activity, some sort of trading activity, but how direct between citizens yeah. of Rome? Uh, there may be lots of middlemen, mm. as it were, but there's no military activity in the Highlands, in Argyll and Butte, which is so sort of, when you look at a map of Scotland and you see all the hilly areas of the mm. sort of, all in the northwest. No, no evidence of activity there. Or any of the islands, right. um, none of the islands in Scotland have any activity other than a couple of objects found, as I said. On the mainland, how far west they got sort of depends a bit on your interpretation of what west is. If you're looking mm. at it in terms of longitude and latitude, further south is more west than further north. Yeah. But to keep it simple, along the west coast of Scotland, um, sort of west from Glasgow, along the Clyde. There's some fortifications associated with the Antonine Wall. Um, mm. Slightly further south on that coastal stretch, you get into um, Turnbury, which has a golf course owned by a former American president. You've got a couple of Roman camps in that area that are dated to the first century. Mm. And then further south in Dumfries and Galway, which is southwest Scotland, the furthest camp uh, that, that is facing west, and it would be the furthest west in Scotland, is a place called Glen Luce, which is Dumfries and Galloway, and that is near the Rins of Galloway. So in a map of Scotland, you've got this sort of sticky out leg bit southwest, mm. and it's just at that narrow neck of land before it becomes the sticky out bit. And that's a first century camp. We know very little about it. It was potentially guarding that neck of land. To the right. north of it is the main road through the area in the Roman period. It's still roughly follows the same route as the modern road. And it's also where the river uh, entrance is. And it also has great views of the Solway for the Isle of Man. And you can just see a bit of Northern Ireland on a really good day from that site. 
is there any suggestion that the Romans were thinking about invading Ireland from that point, or is that just wow. speculation? This comes back to Tacitus. So the evidence of the suggestion would date to the first century. And Tacitus writes that Agricola gathered all his troops on the nearest part of land facing Ireland, Hibernia, uh, with a view to invading it. Huh. The narrowest neck of the narrowest neck of land is actually slightly further north on the Argyll and Butte Peninsula, right. where there's no evidence of Roman activity. Okay. So let's let's rule that out because the Romans weren't active in that area. That would make Dumfries and Galloway the nearest point of land to uh, Northern Ireland, and of course, uh, there's a modern ferry that sails over that way, and there's lots of pre I think Second World War. There's lots of links between Northern Ireland and different parts of the Dumfries and Galloway coast. Mm. But there's no evidence of infrastructure. If you're going to invade a country, you need thousands yeah. of troops, accommodation, yeah. infrastructure, roads, weaponry development. You know, Perhaps there may have been an inclination to go from that point into Ireland. Yeah, we've, we've got Tacitus saying it happened, but of course Tacitus is... Yeah. grasp of actual geography is very different. I suspect there were plans to invade Hibernia. It makes complete sense. And then Tastus, mm. he says that they believe would help to pacify yeah. Britain. Um, yeah. There's obviously problems with people from Ireland coming over and attacking or something. I suspect the actual location of that was Chester, um, because yeah. you're talking about a Lidry mm. fortress there yeah. that's, what, twenty. For just under just over twenty four hectares, and it had a harbour, likely to have had all the infrastructure there, shipbuilding, everything you need for an invasion. I, I think that's either Tacitus telling a bit of a, a porky pie to make Agricola look good, or he's getting his geography confused. Mm. I remember reading that one of the rationale behind invading the British Isles was because there was issues in northern Gaul from activity over the Channel. My final question is whether there is a couple of misconceptions around Roman Scotland that you can now completely get rid of with anyone listening to this podcast. Yeah, so I think there's probably two things. The first one is the furthest north that the Romans got, or the furthest that they got, it's sort of northwest, and that's a site that frequently comes up called Cawdor, or Eastern mm. Galcantry, has two names. And it was identified in the 1980s by an archaeologist flying over the site who subsequently went to excavate it. And there's a lot of people that believe it's a Roman site, and it's on Wikipedia as a Roman site. It's not Roman whatsoever. It's unfortunately an example of really poor archaeology. And the, a site was found. That site was found during a, a program of research to try and find Roman sites, and that has a little bias in it. But you find a site, you then excavate it. Unfortunately, the archaeologist doing that work was very determined to find a Roman site, and this site right. is has one bit of radiocarbon dating that suggests activity on the site in the first century. However, that's only one date and you need to take many dates yeah. to do that. And all that shows is that someone burnt something on that site in that period. They could be traveller or anything else. 
What more evidence do you want? <laughs> a lot more evidence. The other evidence from it comes from a glass bead, but glass beads are notoriously difficult to date, and they can have a 3,000, right. 4,000 year potential window of dating. Wow. Um, the other piece of evidence he used was a fragment of stone that was found um, that was similar to a fragment of stone found on another site. And that is just a random bit of stone. <laughs> Nothing that, you know, it's not like a piece of carving or something like that. It's mm. just a fragment of one thing that was similar to another thing. It's not. It's very, you can't pin the whole date on the site. The other issue is that when he excavated, he drew a diagram of all the sites, and there are a lot of post holes. So there's definitely a structure there. Mm. Um, the defences are very, um, for want of a better word, bulbous. So you should be more or less right, right angled corners right. that are yeah. rounded, um, that end quite nicely, quite uniform, mm. and his were quite bulbous in places. They only found half of them. The other half was where the river was, and the Romans don't build fortifications like that and then a lot of the internal post holes which form buildings he decided they all joined up they all formed part of right. one building these post holes now you've got eight post holes in a bit of a pattern it's a big assumption to say that they're mm. all from the same building at the same mm. time and, and this mm. person did a lot of that where's that where's that again so what's this place it's called so this is called is cordor Cordor's in Shakespeare. That's uh, Th Thane of Cordor. Yeah, Shakespeare. Thane of Cordor. It's fairly nearby Cordor Castle. It's also got the name Eastern Galcantry. It's on Wikipedia, right. but it is definitely not Roman. Uh, what's the second one that you had? The second one is Mons Graupius. So this mm. is the big battle. Uh, Tacitus writes about it. Massive battle at the end of Agricola's time in Scotland. Uh, the, the indigenous population put firmly in their place. Everybody seems to think they know where it is. And there mm. is very little in the description that, that in the book that, that tells us anything with any certainty. All we know is that there was a Roman fortification nearby and yeah. that on top of the hill were a number of indigenous dwellings. And, then, mm. um, and that the these thousands and thousands of uh, indigenous tribes, people, and along with some chariots, all came down the hill and had the big battle, and Romans won. People have tried to identify where that is. Now, the first place we have to assume that the battle took place. I mean, I've, yeah. I've no doubt a lot of Tacitus is based in some sort of event, but it's been spun yeah. out in all sorts of ways. Yeah. And how you can spin something out if you weren't there or even if you're speaking to someone that was there, and this is several years later, which it certainly inevitably was, mm. you know, you don't remember all this detail, and everybody loves a good no. yarn, you know. If you're, yes. You're, particularly yes. if it's going to be published in some sort of a book to the yeah. upper echelons of Roman society. Absolutely. Um, so, so this battle, assuming it took place, we don't know where. It's north of the Pennines, is all we can say, and involves a big hill. That really narrows it down. <laughs> Exactly. You know, you've got a number of sites. You know, Burnswork that I mentioned, it could equally be there or it could be Benachy, which is quite mm. a popular one up in northeast Scotland. 
there's a lot of other places. There's some work going on by Gordon Noble and his team at Aberdeen University that are looking at some hill forts that have been postulated as being part of this. Okay. And as far as I'm aware to date, none of the dating supports those sites being occupied in right. the first century. So it's complicated again. Yeah, um, yeah. And we cannot assume it happened. We cannot assume it did not happen. And we can't assume where it happened. You know, there's mm. lots of places we have to find the archaeological evidence to support or not support the activity. At the moment, we're doing quite well in not supporting where things mm. happen. But there's lots of mm. possible sites we need to look into. But that takes time and a lot of money. And yeah. it's a bit like a needle in a haystack. So that brings us then to the end of our conversation. I just want to say thanks again. It's been absolutely fascinating listening to you discuss and give insights into all the areas. And we've covered a great deal of ground on what we've spoken about over the the two episodes that we have done. Thanks again for coming on, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Again, if people want to come and find you, where can they find you? At Roman Scotland on Twitter. Um, Yeah romanscotland.social on mastodon although i'm not really using that much yet or the internet or amazon you can follow me as an author on amazon and and do things that comes up on there i'll put some links to dr andrew tibbs on the episode notes go to agentblogger.com you can go and find them there perhaps one day we'll have some more interesting stuff to talk about to do with rome scotland and in the meantime take care thanks again for coming on thanks very much